Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I'll never forget the feeling. There I was. I was standing on my friend's front porch, knocking on his door, waiting for him to come. My hands were shaking. I had that feeling in the pit of my stomach. Perhaps you felt that before. See, what had just transpired was a, a verbal argument that took place, and I felt the deepest sense of shame, of remorse, of regret. And there I was in front of my friend, ready to confess, ready to own the things that I had done. Perhaps you've also tasted of what it is to be in the strain of relational conflict. You know that feeling of the shaking of hands and the feeling in the pit of your stomach because you yourself have spoken harsh words to another. You yourself have brought conflict to the table. Maybe with righteous motive or unrighteous motive, everyone in this room has experienced what it is to live in relational conflict. We recognize that as sinners saved by grace, when we bring ourselves into closer proximity, whether it be in our household or in our church or in our workplace, as we bring uh, our sinful selves to closer proximity to other sinners, it's like like like-polled magnets. Like when you push them together, they want to just naturally repel away from one another, and it creates this kind of relational tension that exists between us, and it's just difficult, isn't it? In the last six months, we've all kind of experienced some kind of relational atrophy, haven't we? We've, we've kind of withdrawn ourselves out of um, sometimes a, a good fear of something that's it's scary at times. But as we've withdrawn ourselves, we've kind of atrophied in our relational selves, and as we kind of push ourselves back into society, we might find it harder and harder to engage and harder and harder to be gracious and kind to those around us. This morning, there's a question that's posed in front of us in the text, and it's like this. How can sinful people address the sinful actions of others with righteousness? How can you and I, as sinners saved by grace, address the sin that we might see in another person with grace and kindness and love? After all, all, that's what Jesus called us to, right? He said in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, what? Go and show him his fault. So how do we do that? How do we, as sinners, not approach another sinner with sin? See, what's brought in front of us this morning in Genesis 31 is that that is the lens whereby we see Jacob's true flaws. We see that Jacob hasn't truly wrestled with the God of grace and hasn't come to see his own sinful humanity. And because of that, he has all kinds of shortcomings with his interactions with Laban. Last week, um, Brian did such a great job of unpacking Genesis 30 and kind of the 
odd Jerry Springer-esque kind of relationships that exist in that whole situation. And this morning, we're going to kind of continue in that vein. And, and here's our big idea, right? God is faithful to His servants amidst relational conflict. So if you're one of those this morning, sinners saved by grace, drawn into relational conflict, whether it be here or at your workplace or in your home, God is faithful to you. And we want to kind of draw that out of our text this morning. Well, we're going to start in Genesis 30, verses 25 through 43, where Jacob discusses leaving with Laban. And he kind of negotiates a different wage, and we'll see how that goes. Well, then Jacob's going to discuss leaving with his wives, Rachel and Leah. Discussing anything with a wife is difficult, let alone with two wives will be more difficult in verses 1 through 16. And then verses 17 through 55 of Genesis 31, Jacob leaves abruptly. And as Laban describes it, he steals his heart. And we're going to kind of dig into this passage to see the God of grace bless Jacob despite himself, right? I want to pray this morning to kind of focus our hearts and our minds and our attention upon what God has for us here this morning. So would you pray with me one more time? Lord, we ask again that you would draw our heart's affection to your grace, to the Son, Jesus Christ, who has purchased us with his own blood. Remind us as sinners drawn into relational conflict that you are gracious to us. Show us from your word what you desire to show us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start in Genesis 30. As we see God is faithful to his servants amidst relational conflict, we're going to start here that Jacob discusses leaving with Laban. Look at verse 25 of Genesis 30 with me here this morning. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home country or home and country. Give me my, my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. Notice Jacob has two requests, right? The first is, send me away that I may go to my home country, right? He's looking for this thing called the golden handshake. He has made this deal with Laban, whereby he would labor for 14 years for two wives, and then also he's going to labor uh, some additional time for this wage that he's about to negotiate, but he's looking for this kind of setting free from Laban, this kind of uh, dismissal that he can walk away uh, right and clean. The second request is, give me my wives and children. And this is going to become a point of contention later on between Jacob and Laban. In chapter 31, verse 43, Laban's going to say this. He says, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. Laban doesn't quite get the like leave and cleave mentality that's been described here in Genesis. And so Laban's kind of holding tight to these daughters of his. And we'll see later on that that really that's a business proposition for him, not so much a loving uh, statement about how he loves his daughters. See, Laban secretly understands the daughters are still to be his, and he's still clinging to them. Really what stands out in these early verses, verse 25 and 26, is that Jacob is, is, is just abrupt. He's just kind of rude in the, in the way that he's speaking. Now, tone is a hard thing to determine from translation. Uh, we we got to realize we're looking at a Hebrew text originally that's been translated into an English text, and so sometimes things can be a little bit clunky. But as a lot of commentators have looked at these verses, they're commenting on how Jacob is just kind of direct and forthright and, and kind of abrupt in the way he requests this of Laban. 
Now notice how Laban responds in verses 27 through 33. Look there with me. Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. And Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, What shall I give you? See, Laban starts off with this air of humility, right? If I have found favor in your sight. This is a a phrase that's used throughout the book of Genesis. Laban's kind of using it here. It's actually servant language. It's it's meant to have an air of humility about it. Uh, He uses this humble language to kind of get access to what he wants, which is namely the, the retaining of Jacob and thus his wives. But then verse 27 uh, he, he acknowledges that the Lord has blessed me because of you. See, Laban sees that Jacob is divinely blessed. We've seen this throughout the book of Genesis. We've seen it as Abimelech has uh, acknowledged that God had blessed Abraham, and a different Abimelech uh, sees that God has uh, blessed Isaac, Jacob's father. That is why Laban is trying to keep him. Laban recognizes that Jacob is blessed, or more uh, according to the passage, that, that Laban is being blessed because of the presence of Jacob. So what he says in verses 28 and again in verse 31 is he says, name your wage. It doesn't matter what you cost, keeping you here is the priority because you are the means by which I receive divine blessing. And so Jacob responds, and he says, you yourself know. And in verse 30, he says, for you had little before I came and has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. So Jacob's service has profited Laban. But also, Jacob's service has not profited Jacob, which is what he says in the second half of verse 30. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? Your daughters that I've married, when are we going to start to build wealth for our family? When am I going to stop building your wealth and see my household built up? And so what happens is in verses 31 through 33, after Jacob has prompted him twice, Jacob names his wage. And in verse 31, he says it with clarity. Look at verse 31 with me. He says, uh, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the speckled and spotted among the goats, and, uh, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wage with you, uh, excuse me, I read that wrong. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come and look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. Uh, But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was uh, black and put them in the charge of his sons. See, Jacob suggests his wage. And what he's doing here is he's really kind of taking a bet. If you understand, uh, 
I'm the last person to explain goats and sheep to anybody here, but if I understand things correctly, it was kind of a, um, a, a trait that wasn't passed on often, that a uh, goat would come out and it would be speckled or spotted, that a lamb would come out black, and so these were the minority of these uh, livestock that were born. And so Jacob's saying, go through all your flock today and remove, or I'll go through all your flock today and I'll remove them. And what we'll do is from that point forward, all the speckled, all the black lambs will be mine. That will be my wage. And so Jacob is kind of laying down a bet, as it were. Jacob is tying his fortune to a genetic roll of the dice, so to speak. Laban loves this. Laban jumps at the opportunity in verses 34 through 36. Laban said, good, let it be as as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flocks. Laban jumps at the opportunity. He knows that it's unlikely that these marked goats and lambs will be born without genetic markers in their herds. And what he does is he removes all of those uh, kind of genetically... Uh, I'm lacking the terminology here this morning, but those genetically affected lambs and goats, and he removes them three days' journey away from that flock that Jacob is going to keep. So there's not much likelihood that they would pass on that trait. Look at how conniving Laban is. He removes, he removes the speckled sheep and goats, not Jacob, as was discussed. He gives the speckled livestock to his sons. He removes himself three days' journey so nobody can interbreed these flocks together. The upshot of all of this is that Jacob is a business opportunity to Laban, isn't he? Throughout Genesis, Laban has always been presented as this opportunistic guy. If you remember back when um, Abraham's servant came looking for a wife for Isaac, and um, the servant comes and he finds Rebekah, and he's rejoicing that God has provided a potential wife for Isaac, and he puts a gold bracelet on her wrist and rings and all these other things. He gives her all this bling for her, and she goes back to the house, and Laban sees the bracelet on her hand and then comes running to find Abraham's servant. He's just an opportunistic guy. And so Laban jumps at the opportunity for more wealth, for more accumulation of livestock through the presence of Jacob. This is where it's interesting because Jacob is also going to turn his attention to how he can manipulate the system in verses 37 through 43. Look at verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs uh, before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger 
Jacob's. You understand what's happening here. This is uh, the epitome of what we might call junk science. And Jacob is kind of using junk science to get his wage, right? You've heard of this familiar term, junk science. And in the 90s, the idea was that you would call, uh, you were in the middle of a litigation process, you would call an expert witness to the stand, and this scientist would come up and he would espouse some type of theory without any kind of accountability to the science community or anything else, and he would convince a jury of what he was stating. And so they would try and get their client to be removed because of some type of scientific theory that was proposed before this 11-person jury that they were trying to manipulate. Well, this is the rise of kind of this false scientific notion. It's defined as untested or unproven theories when presented as scientific fact. And so what happens here is Jacob gets pseudoscientific Jacob is buying into the home remedy culture of his unscientific world. Uh, To Jacob, if you remember back in his story, birth order was no, uh, you know, obstacle to receive the lion's share of his father's inheritance. And now, here he is trying to manipulate the mystery of reproduction to his benefit. But we have to be honest here. Stripping poplar sticks and, and branches of various trees and plants in his area doesn't exactly make him a James Watson. I had to look that one up, okay? Someone who's deeply involved in genetics, right? He's, he's more of a cattle rancher, isn't he? He's someone who's trying to manipulate this environment through something that, if we're honest, doesn't work. If you strip the bark off of these sticks and set them in front of a a breeding calf or whatever else. It doesn't mean that they come out striped or spotted or anything else. That has nothing to do with it. We know that today, don't we? So what's going on? I want to draw attention to verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. See, Jacob is blessed despite his dedication to junk science. Even when Jacob is still tricking his way into blessing, God is faithful to him. In fact, this is exactly what he's going to acknowledge as we turn our attention to chapter 31. See, Jacob is going to recognize that that his blessing has not come from his manipulation or his hard work. His blessing has come from God himself. And so in verses 1 through 16 of 31, we see Jacob discusses leaving with Rachel and Leah. Look at verse, or chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob starts to hear rumblings, and he receives this direction from God. The rumblings are are that Laban's sons resent Jacob's prosperity. Look at verse 1. Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. I want to just highlight this word because this is prominent in chapter 31. This word taken is going to be used uh, kind of significantly throughout this chapter, and it's going to highlight some of the movements of this, of this story. Here, the narrative is that Jacob stole or t- took from Laban. Uh, but remember, Jacob was very careful to be uh, kind of above, above board with his interactions with Laban. 
And, and still this accusation comes. All right, so just put that on the shelf for a second. Laban himself, this is the second thing that Jacob notices, that Laban, Laban himself doesn't look favorably at Jacob anymore, right? It's the hall and oats. You've lost that loving feeling, right? Jacob's sensing that there's a tension between he and Laban. Laban viewed Jacob as a business venture, as we've already seen, and as Jacob has prospered, it meant the lack of prosperity for Laban. And the bare-bones reality is this. As Jacob became less, or as Laban became less profitable through Jacob, Jacob became less loved. As Jacob prospered more and Laban prospered less, Jacob was less of a priority for Laban. Verse 3, these realizations come at the same time as God's guidance. And God uh, uses the natural inclination of Jacob's heart to kind of push him to this opportunity to leave. So verse 3, God guides Jacob to return to his homeland. In verses 4 through 16, Jacob discusses leaving with Rachel and Leah. Look at verse 4 with me. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, or where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your, your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion of our inheritance left in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever has God has said to you, do. See, they start out and they go out to the, fi- the field to speak privately to one another. Jacob doesn't want any ears hearing that he doesn't need there. And Jacob makes his case to his wives. What Jacob does is interesting because he really starts to pit this idea of there's God's agenda and there's Laban's agenda. And he starts off in in verse 5 and he says this, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. In verses 6 through 8, he describes how Laban tried to change Jacob's wage to serve himself. But in verse 9, he describes how God has taken from Laban. When Laban's sons were convinced that Jacob had taken from Laban, Jacob sees that the Lord has done so, that, that the Lord has stripped away Laban's wealth and has laid it in the lap of Jacob himself. 
verses 10 through 13 top off the argument as Jacob recalls this kind of conversation that he had with God or God speaking to him in a dream. First in in verses 10 and then again in verse 12, God draws attention to how he has provided for Jacob. Look at verse 12. He says, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, or spotted, or mottled. I'm going to mess that up. That's like a tongue twister for me. They're striped, spotted, or mottled, right? And he's drawing attention. See, See how I've been faithful to you? Every time your wage changes, I've provided. The second thing God does is God acknowledges Jacob's suffering. In verse 12, he says, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I see I know your suffering. Verse 13, God reminds Jacob of his history. He says, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. If you don't remember, Bethel is that place where Jacob leaves Esau and Isaac and the whole situation is just him alone in the wilderness and he lays his head down on a rock, falls asleep and has a vision of this staircase that has angels ascending and descending between heaven and earth, later a picture of Jesus Christ. At the end of that passage in Genesis 28, uh, Jacob makes this vow to God. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. See, Jacob's made a promise to God. God's calling him to remember that promise. So what's happening here? I feel like we're just sprinting through this passage. See, Jacob has been course-corrected, hasn't he? Jacob's going off in this uh, self-reliant way. He's stripping the bark off of almond branches. He's setting them in front of the water coolers. He's, he's doing whatever it takes to, to make sure that the flock is manipulated so that he gains the wealth that he needs so that he can move out and get a place of his own, so to speak. But here, God draws his attention to his ongoing faithfulness and care. God's sovereign hand has brought guidance to Jacob. And in his grace, God allowed the almond branch efforts of a foolish, desperate Jacob to succeed. And now, he reveals to Jacob that it's time to come home. My wife and I, were, we had a date last night. And we were just talking about 2020 in review. Now, I haven't run this by her, but she said she came up with three things from 2020 that stood out, lessons that she learned. All of them had to do with how terrific her husband is, every one of them. Uh, I won't divulge the nature of that conversation, but in reflecting on it and responding, I just realized that uh, something that's been stirring in my own heart and mind is this idea that I have this ability to speak massive truths, to receive massive promises from God's Word, but still be so incredibly inconsistent in the way I live them out, to uh, mingle with these divine promises that are stated to us in God's Word, to hear these things that are just amazing and astounding from what God speaks to us, yet not be able to translate them into consistent action that would please God and honor Him. And so what I want to see out of 2021, or 2021, 
I don't know what just happened there. 2021. 20, it's just consistency. Greater maturity in Christ. See, while Jacob may be saying the right words, the next section of our text will reveal that Jacob is inconsistent. He's immature. The grace of God still hasn't settled in on Jacob's mind and and heart so as to produce consistent, righteous living in him. He, He still wants to earn his standing with God. He still wants to manipulate those around him so that he can gather for himself. And as such, he is still vulnerable to the upheavals of life. You know, Ephesians 4 has this passage where, where Paul says that uh, we can easily become like, like immature children. We're tossed about by every wave of doctrine. We're just kind of thrown here and there because we're not rooted in the work of Christ. And what Paul is saying there is that as we hear the sermons, as we read the words, as the church of God ministers to us, we're grown up into maturity in Christ so that we're not tossed around, so that we're not uh, just blown from here to there to here again. See, Christian maturity is the ability to speak truth in love, to grow up into our spiritual head, Jesus Christ, to not be so affected, to not be so inconsistent. So let's dig in. This is the the meat of this passage in in 17 through 55 of of chapter 31. Now, I promise you here this morning, right? This is a long text, but I had two T's this morning, so it's going to get me out of this pulpit one way or the other, right? There's the caffeine that's making me speak too fast, or I'm going to have to use the restroom here in about 20 minutes. So I promise we're going to get out of this, okay? But in 17 through 55, we see that Jacob leaves abruptly. And what it, the culmination of that is that it steals Laban's heart. Look at verse 17 through 21. See, Jacob leaves with his family, and Rachel steals, Rachel steals Laban's idol. And so in 17 through 21, I'll just kind of summarize it for us here this morning. Jacob leaves with his family. And he does so in the midst of this sheep shearing season that's kind of chaotic for, for Laban's household. And Rachel uses that opportunity in verse 20 or verse 19 to kind of move into Laban's house and to steal his gods, his, his little uh, idols that he would worship. And verses 20 through 21 highlight the scandal for us. Look at verse 20. He says, And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. See, interestingly, the word used for tricked here is the same word that is used of Rachel stealing the idols. So Rachel stealing and Laban stealing. The ESV makes this footnote of it that that Jacob stole the heart of Laban. See, that word, stealing, taking, it's going to be used six more times in the chapter. The author is showing us that Jacob is is at it again. Jacob, gonna Jacob, right? He's manipulating and conniving and stealing and thieving, and that's what he does. On verses 22 through 55, Laban catches up with Jacob and confronts him. You can already sense the feeling in the pits of our stomach, the shaking of the hands, because this interaction is going to get tense. 
Verses 22 through 24, Laban finds out that Jacob and his family have left, and he chases after them. It's in the midst of this pursuit that that God comes to Laban in a dream. In verse 24, look at verse 24. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Why? Because God has blessed Abraham, right? Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. He's warning Laban, if you curse Jacob, I will curse you. If you do any harm against Jacob, you will be harmed. In verse 25 through 35, Laban catches up with Jacob, and he states his case in verses 26 through 29. Look at verse 26 with me. So what have you done? What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me? Notice how Laban presents his, himself as the victim here, right? Even though he has previously acknowledged Jacob's presence has made him wealthy, even though he has tricked Jacob on multiple occasions, even though God himself has warned him about Jacob, Jacob views him, or Laban views himself as the victim. Verse 30 adds the icing on the cake. And now you have gone away, uh, gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Laban's most concerned that his household gods are gone. Laban goes on and he searches through the tents of Rachel and Leah and Jacob and the servants and he finds nothing. And verses 34 through 35 highlight this lie of Rachel because as Laban's about to go in her tent, she hides the idols underneath her camel's Uh, where she's sitting on the camel. And when uh, Laban asks her to move, she says that the way of women has caught up, is upon her. So Jacob responds in verses 36 through 42. Here's Laban. He's gone through all of their stuff. He's hunted them down. Jacob has that feeling in the pit of his stomach, the shaking of the hands. And verses 36 and 37 are so important. Listen to what he says. Jacob became angry and berated Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. Zero in on Jacob's two questions. They're meant to be rhetorical. What is my offense? What is my sin? And see, we realize Jacob really doesn't know, does he? He really doesn't get it. Ironically, verse 37 actually clues us in. That word that's used for Laban feeling through all his goods, the last time we saw that word used was when Isaac went... Jacob came to Isaac with the the fur upon his arms, and Isaac felt the arms of Jacob, smoothed Jacob, but he felt like Esau. Jacob may be innocent in regard to Laban, but he's not innocent before the Lord, and he's not innocent before Esau, and he's not innocent before Isaac. 
While Laban can't produce the smoking gun, the stolen idols, they were present. And Jacob doesn't even know about it. Jacob has more sin than he even knows about. And while he's convinced that he's sinless, there's something under the saddle that he has to investigate, right? See, the denouement of all this comes in, in verses 43 through 55, where Laban responds So look at verse 43 with me. This is kind of the falling out that happens. 31. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Chapter 31, verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do for this day? Or what can I do this day for these my daughters or their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And what happens from here is that Jacob builds this pile of stones, and and they name it. And the names, again, as always in Genesis, the names are crucial. Laban calls it uh, Jagger Sahadatha, which means pile of rocks. And Hebrew, Jacob calls it Galid, which means a pile of stones or a witness of stones or something like that. But more importantly, Laban refers to it as Mizpah, which is a Hebrew word saying this is for Jacob. You need to understand this this way. And that word means watchtower. And Laban makes this statement. He's saying that God is watching over both of them when they are not in one another's sight. And he's saying that Jacob is not to take any additional wives, and neither party is to cross this tower, this mispah, this watchtower, and go and attack the other one. And what we have represented here is the absolute breakdown of relationship between Laban and Jacob. So let's just stop. We just went through some 70 verses. And just take inventory of what God is saying to us. See, God blesses Jacob amidst difficulty with Laban. See, Jacob enters into Padan Aram with nothing but leaves with everything, with two wives and 11 kids and all of this livestock and wealth of Laban. But Jacob isn't as innocent as he claims himself to be. Remember, he was the one who's striping the almond branches to manipulate the breeding patterns. And further, he still hasn't really reckoned with the lies that he's told to his father and stealing his brother's birthright. What we have in Jacob is a man who verbalizes God's grace but doesn't internalize it. We know he he doesn't internalize it because he's willing to fault Laban for doing the exact same things that he's done. We brought this picture up a few weeks ago, and it still stands to reason. Jacob and Laban are the same guy pointing at one another. You do the same things that I do. See, Laban and Jacob have both fooled loved ones. Laban and Jacob have both lied and cheated their way into prosperity. And yet Jacob holds Laban to a higher standard than he would hold himself to. So the takeaway this morning is that our graceless interactions threaten division to us, don't they? When we go into an interaction, to an altercation with someone else without a firm sense of God's grace to us in our lives, we threaten this kind of caustic, uh, divisive nature that will rise to the surface. 
See, Jesus spoke into this. Jesus teaches us to check our sin before we address the sin of others. And and this place in Matthew chapter 7, in fact, fact, the first verse of this chapter might be the most quoted verse in all of the Bible in our contemporary age. Judge not that you be not judged. You ever heard somebody say that? Hey, don't, don't speak against this issue or that issue. Don't speak against this practice or that practice. Uh, do not judge unless you yourself be judged, right? It's right up there from uh, uh, what other people think that the Bible says things like help, God helps those who help themselves, right? Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to this pattern of righteousness. And he says this, he says, judge not that you be not judged. And Jesus shows us that we should judge by a standard we are willing to be judged by. Let's just stop and apply that standard to, to Jacob and Laban. Jacob is concerned that Laban has changed his wage ten times. Yet remember the wage that Jacob required from his brother Esau for soup? Jacob has stolen from his brother and deceived his blind father. Jacob claims to have worked hard only to be met with inconsistent pay, but he also sought to manipulate the breeding of animals to his own benefit. But Jesus also speaks here about specks and logs. Look at verse 2. For with judgment, or for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly and take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus outlines a grace-oriented approach to another person's sin. First, he tells us to remember that we are sinful people, that we have a, a plank hanging out of our own eye. You have this large branch hanging out of your eye, and yet you have the audacity to approach someone else and say, hey, you've got a little speck there. Notice in, in Jesus' imagery, it's not simply that you have the same sin, it's that your sin is more significant, more obvious than, than that which you're addressing in someone else. It, it kind of fits with Paul's statement in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where he says the statement is trustworthy and true, a, a statement that deserves acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. And if I'm to address the sin in someone else's eye, so to speak, I must first take the plank out of my own eye. And so step one is to remember that you also are sinful. Step two is to remember God's grace to you so you can graciously interact with someone else. That's what he says in verse five. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. See, when we look at this passage, we see that Jacob hasn't done this yet. Jacob hasn't recognized his sinfulness. He hasn't wrestled with the Almighty, as it were, and come out limping. We have no evidence that Jacob has adequately considered his actions against Esau. So this morning, as we see this interaction between Jacob and Esau, we see uh, the conflict that's there, and we see the words of Christ. We recognize that we need to be people who are oriented to grace. 
See, recipients of grace act graciously. You and I, we tend to two extremes when we talk about this. When we talk about uh, confrontation of others and the wrongs that, that, that perhaps have been performed against us, we, we either do one of two things. The first thing is we act like Jacob, and we want to confront others but not be confronted ourselves. We, we tend to use the sins of others to justify our sinfulness. You know, you talk to a, a person who doesn't know Jesus out on the street or at your workplace or whatever, and you'll say, hey, um, do you, do you call yourself a Christian or whatever else? He goes, well, you know, a lot of times you'll hear this response back to say, well, I'm, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Adolf Hitler. And they're kind of putting themselves on this continuum saying, I'm not the best, but I'm not the worst either. I'm probably somewhere in the middle, and I think God's going to be gracious to me. And we always want to put ourselves on this timeline or this, uh, this continuum, so to speak, of, of righteousness versus sinfulness, and, and we're probably somewhere in the middle. The truth is, as we stand before a righteous and holy God, we are sinners that that deserve the full wrath of God, and we need uh, an extension of grace from Him. And so we interact with others, and we don't want to acknowledge their sin, or when we acknowledge their sin, we want to uh, bolster our self-righteousness. But the other thing we might do is we might tend to just not confront anyone. We, we tend to just kind of back away from any hard conversations where we would have to point out any flaws in another individual. We uh, had somebody sin against us, but we don't want to speak about it. We don't want to call attention to it because, uh, you know, it's just better just to let bygones be bygones or just to kind of uh, just move on from the past. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 5. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He assumes that we will do the work to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That it's a loving interaction to point out the sinfulness that we carry into our relationships. Not because we're, we're better, but because it's just loving and kind. See, the truth of the matter is that you aren't equipped to confront until you've been forgiven. The relational and emotional capital involved in pointing out another's wrongdoing is too high, too expensive for us to kind of lay it all out on the line. And exposing others in their sin means that we ourselves might be exposed. And so there's just too much chance that I will be exposed as a sinner, too much opportunity for things to go south, and so it would just be better for me not to speak up at all. Without the assurance of God's grace, a sinner never wants to be exposed. We never want to be shown for who we really are. Here's where the gospel speaks with such clarity. The story of Jesus' death and resurrection says that we do have a massive plank in our eye. And the one who lived without sin came to bear our sinfulness. He lovingly and gently addresses the plank, the sin, in our lives, and he removes it from us. He takes on the wrath of God at the cross and eradicates that wrath so that you and I might live in righteousness, so that we might have the righteousness of Christ applied to us, that there's no condemnation before his throne, and now you and I are righteous in Christ. It gives us the confidence to be able to engage others with their sinfulness and for, for them to engage us in ours. When we have that confidence that, that Jesus knows our sin and died to pay for it, we acknowledge the plank in our eye, and only then can we help others to lovingly see the speck in theirs. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself in the throes of this relational conflict. Maybe it's an unbeliever or a believer or whoever else, a family member or a loved one or a friend. Let me ask, do you have the confidence in Jesus' payment on the cross to lovingly, gently confront? See, this passage this morning before us in Genesis 30 and 31 is using the lens of this relational conflict between Laban and Jacob to highlight what God wants to do in Jacob. Does God want to work in you somehow this morning? Does he want you to treasure his grace even more, to so value the work of Christ so that we might cling to it further? I have gone way over my time here this morning, but I hope you might stay with us and eat. I hope you might uh, remain with us in fellowship. I want to pray. I want to pray that God makes us a people who cling to the truth of the gospel in our relationships. Lord, we ask that you would accomplish this, that you would, by your grace and glory and kindness, you would form us to the image of your Son who always spoke the truth in love. He was filled with grace and truth. Lord, help us to speak truth in love. Help us to take on the character of Christ that we so cling to uh, his work on the cross, his resurrection in power, that we might be those who are willing to speak a gentle, loving word to our brothers and sisters, who might speak a gentle, loving word to those who don't know you and call them to faith in Christ. Lord, make us people of deep faith. Make us mature believers. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.